0: Well, very good to uh, be back together singing praises to the Lord and back together in study of His Word. If you're, uh, if you're uh, with us, whether remotely in our live stream or here, take your Bibles and open up to Matthew chapter 5. There's a lot of discussion these uh, days about the goat. That is the greatest of all time. There's a recent series, as you may know, that ran on ESPN, that received a lot of press discussing Michael Jordan and the debate about whether he was the greatest basketball player of all time. There's discussions about the greatest coach of all time, the greatest game of all time, the greatest military commander, the greatest president, the greatest movie, whatever it might be. There are all kinds of debates about what is the greatest of all time. Well today we come to what is likely the greatest sermon of all time. No not my sermon but the sermon on the mount, right? The sermon on the mount is no doubt the most famous sermon that has ever been preached. It is filled with memorable phrases that populate our daily discourse and become a part of even our clichés. They're they're part of our political discourse and well-known speeches uh Famous pieces of literature are peppered with statements from the Sermon on the Mount. It is the longest sermon that's recorded in the New Testament and the longest that we have, certainly, of any of Jesus' sermons or discourses. And throughout the history of the church, it has been the fascination of, of really uh, uh, theologians and pastors from the very early days. Augustine and, and those even before him, took up whole studies of the Sermon on the Mount, and there have been numerous works that have been dedicated just to this work, just to this sermon. It's been called the essence of Jesus' teaching, and in some cases people say that it is the essence of Christianity itself. You can't overstate the importance of the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most significant passages you'll ever study in Scripture, and for that reason we're going to take our time. We're not going to rush... As we move through this in the next couple of months, we want to soak in everything that the Lord has to say to us in these words, in this great, great sermon. We want to think deeply about it. We want to understand why it has been the fascination of so many people, why it has received so much praise through all of the years. And I think if you took the significance or if you wanted to boil down the significance of the sermon uh, to just one thing, you could probably do that by means of its purpose. It's the purpose of the sermon that makes it stand out so much. It addresses something that was significant in Christ's time and is significant today. Uh, an issue that has dominated the church uh, really uh, over and over again throughout all of its years. I- I've said from the very beginning of My time in ministry 20 years ago in pastoral ministry, I've often told people that uh, I think the greatest problem facing the church, the greatest challenge facing the church is simple. It is the inability to define what is a Christian. Everyone has their own ideas about what a Christian is, but the real question is, do your ideas about a Christian align with the ideas of Christ himself? And in turn, an inability to define a Christian leads to an inability to define a church and an inability to define the gospel, which leads to an inability to preach the gospel, an inability to fulfill the Great Commission itself. In other words, the the, the general superficiality with which people think about Christianity and Christians in general leads to a superficiality as it relates to the church and a superficiality as it relates to the great commission and our responsibility in it. And all of that extends from the basic inability to define a believer, to define a disciple, a follower of Christ. Certainly, while it's a problem today, it's not a new problem. It's always been a problem. It was a problem all the way back in the time of Christ as much as in his day as it is in ours, and it is the issue that drove the Sermon on the Mount. It's the issue that's essential for us to understand, it's essential for us to get right, the issue of what we might call discerning a disciple, of understanding what a true believer is. Now the content, I think, of the sermon makes that fairly obvious, but Matthew gives us clues right from the very beginning as to this purpose as well, particularly in his brief introduction in verses 1 and 2. He tells us that the initial prompt for the sermon that Jesus gave was Jesus observing the crowds. You'll see it right there in verse 1, seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. So the first thing Matthew tells us here is that Jesus was taking note of the crowds. These were, of course, the crowds that he just mentioned in the previous verse, Matthew 4, 25, those who he tells us were flocking to Galilee once they began to hear about Jesus's miraculous healing ministry they were coming from the Decapolis which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee crossing over uh, probably the top of the northern end of the sea they were coming from all the way down in the south and Judea and Jerusalem uh, making the journey hundreds of miles in some cases they were coming even he told us in the previous verse from all the way up in Syria and in a, in staunchly Gentile territory they were coming they were flocking and amassing from everywhere This was a a statement of the height of Jesus' popularity. They were swelling day by day with this massive wave of, of people coming in as they were responding to the accolades, to the praise, to the celebration of this great healer. And I... I would imagine if you and I saw anything like that in our own day if we were ever a part of that kind of a thing if we were ever swept up in that kind of a moment I can just imagine what we would probably do we would take out a sheet of paper and we begin to write down all the names we would begin to record all of this and make sure we get everyone enrolled and we get all their contact information so that we can seize the momentum so that we can take advantage of the opportunity and push our movement forward. But that's not the way Jesus responds. It's not what you see Him doing. Matthew tells us that He sees the crowds and He withdraws. If you were to describe Jesus' relationship to crowds, I think in general, I think you could summarize it with one word, and that word would be skeptical. He was skeptical of crowds. From the very beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2 records, you remember the early days of his ministry before he ever started out in his uh, great Galilean ministry. After his initial sign in Cana, he goes down to Jerusalem, and that's his first sort of public appearances. After his baptism, after his uh, uh, wilderness temptation, after those very, very early days, he's down in the south. And we read in John 2, 23, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. They were showing interest in him. They were uh, showing exuberance for him. But Jesus knew better than to trust them. Later on in Matthew, Matthew will even tell us about an event in Jesus' ministry he had been teaching in Capernaum and he decides to withdraw from the crowds, we're told, to go off for what was no doubt a an attempted uh, respite, a time of, of prayer and, and maybe some rest. And so he gets into a boat in Capernaum and crosses over to from the western shore over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew tells us that when the people heard this, Matthew fourteen says that he withdrew into this um, uh, withdrew in a boat to a desolate place when the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns and when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd so you could just sort of imagine this that Jesus on the uh, eastern uh, western shore of the sea of galilee he gets into a boat and his disciples begin to row across the uh, the sea it's not that big of a a body of water. And so you can literally see all of the shoreline all around you. And he probably could watch as they're making their way across in the water. He could probably watch across the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee there as crowds of people begin to form. And as they move along the way, Matthew says they're gathering from the towns. And so this just swelling number of people until eventually as they walk the seven or eight or nine miles across the, the, the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, by the time he gets to the other side and docks his boat on the shore, they're already there. And in fact, we're told that there are 5,000 men who are in the crowd. No doubt with the women, it would have been eight, ten thousand 10,000 people who were awaiting him when he got there. And we read in the scripture that Jesus took that opportunity while he wanted to get away. He took that opportunity to teach them, but he was concerned about them because he knew they were all displaced. He knew that they had made all that journey. He knew that there was nothing to feed them. And so he asked his disciples about this and all they could round up was a few loaves of bread, which Jesus, of course, miraculously multiplies and feeds the entire group of people. After that's over, we're told Jesus gets back into the boat and he goes back across the sea to the other side, back to Capernaum. And sure enough, the crowd mounts up and follows him exactly as they did before. I mean, this cannot be described as anything but fanatical. This is intense. This is extreme. Walking back and forth across the sea, just to be able to sit and listen to what Jesus is saying. And yet when they arrive, we're told in John chapter 6, when they arrive in Capernaum and they're seeking out Jesus, John tells us that Jesus looks at them and tells them, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, that is, you saw the signs and believe in me, but, as Jesus says, because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus says, look, I know your motives are not sincere. I know that your interests are not coming from the right place. Sure, I've seen you walk back and forth. I've seen you make all the journey. I've seen you make the trek. I've, I've understood all that, but you are not in the right place. In fact, by the on, end of John 6, we're told that many in the crowd had already abandoned him. Jesus knew about crowds. John 12, 42, later on, it says, Many, even among the authorities, believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Crowds had interest in Jesus. They seemed to always have an interest in Jesus, but it was a superficial interest. These were superficial followers. They were believers, but they were superficial believers. They were disciples in the sense that they wanted to be where Jesus was teaching, but they're superficial disciples. And Jesus knew all about them. He knew all about the crowds. From the very beginning of His ministry, He understood the crowds. And so Matthew tells us right here in Matthew 5 that Jesus, seeing the crowds it prompts him to do something. It prompts him to withdraw from the crowds and to gather his disciples to himself and to deliver this teaching. He wants to solidify in their minds at the very earliest stage, not only of their walk with him, but at the very earliest stages of their ministry, he wants to solidify something in their minds about what these crowds are and the way they should understand them, about what a true disciple is and the way they should understand that. He wants to help them view these crowds as not necessarily true disciples and true believers. He wants them to understand how to discern the kind of disciple that he's looking for. That's the purpose of this sermon. If it was in fact, a single sermon. D.A. Carson suggests it probably wasn't even a single sermon. He notes that at the very beginning in in verse 1 that it's just the disciples who were gathering around Jesus, but by the time you get to the end in chapter 7, verse 28, we're once again told that the multitudes were there. So Carson suggests that this was probably maybe several days, maybe at least a couple of days of teaching. We certainly can understand that Everything we have on the pages of Matthew are not the entire content of what Jesus taught. You could read these uh, few chapters in just uh, about five or six minutes. But Jesus no doubt taught for hours, if not days, on this subject. He wants to drive home these truths. He wants to lay down these principles He wants His followers, His disciples to understand the character that identifies a true follower of Him. So this is a message about discerning disciples. About defining what it is to really be a follower of Christ. And Jesus does that mostly by way of contrasts. The sermon is absolutely full of of contrast. He talks about two different kinds of spirituality. He talks about two different kinds of religion, two different kinds of prayer, two different kinds of holiness. It all sort of culminates in Matthew chapter 7 when he even talks about two different gates. In verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the way you should think about these crowds. There are many who enter into the gate, but it's a gate of destruction. There are many who become disciples, but they're not true disciples. There are many who are followers, but they're superficial followers. He wants them to understand there's two different kinds of disciples and discern the difference between the two. You can see this, by the way, right at the beginning of the Beatitudes as Jesus opens up the Beatitudes and closes the Beatitudes with the same basic uh, blessing or promise. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Matthew five ten: Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is all about who's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is all about who is a true disciple. This is all about who's a true follower. This is the overall purpose of the sermon. Or you could think about it in two ways, two parts. Jesus, on one hand, is trying to expose superficial belief. And on the other hand, he's trying to explain genuine blessedness. Now we could introduce this sermon really to ourselves with those two parts of his overall purpose. First of all, just sort of setting our minds on the first half of that the exposing of superficial belief. The exposing of superficial belief. Jesus sees the vast crowds and he knows the majority of them are not responding out of the right heart. Their response doesn't reflect genuine belief. They all think that they know the pathway to the kingdom of God. They think that they do. They think that they understand the law. They think that they understand the Messiah. They think that they understand spirituality, but they don't. Like so many today who think that they understand what a Christian is. They think of a Christian who as someone who does certain things, who believes in a certain way or behaves in a certain way, who goes to church, who may read their Bible, or they think about a Christian who uh, who affirms certain things. They believe in Jesus. They believe in the Bible. They believe in God. Of course, James tells us the demons believe in God. It's got to be more than that. People think they understand what a Christian is, but Jesus he wants to define a Christian here deep down at his very core that ultimately a a true disciple, a true believer is not defined by this world They're, they are not defined by what is around them they are we might say otherworldly they 're defined by a different kingdom they 're defined by different spiritual uh, a different spiritual dimension they are as we often say, they are in this world, but they're not of this world. True believers belong to a different world they're guided by different assumptions they're they're steered by different values and different goals. Their goals are not of this world they they don't come out of the the uh, principles of this world and all of this sort of comes out in jesus' sermon as you study it here. But the superficial Christian isn't like that. They're very much in the world and they are of it. In fact, you might say that the superficial Christian wants to be in the church, but they do not want to be of it. The superficial Christian may enjoy the the, um, acknowledgement or the compliments or the recognition of being a good person. But they really do not care for the ways of the church. They look they they, they look around them, they see the people around them and they think to themselves, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to act like that. They see the people of church and they, they think that the people that they see are maybe weird or boring or dull or stodgy or unimaginative or just uninteresting or whatever. They want to be in the church, but they don't want to be of the church. They look at the Bible as perhaps a sort of a noble thing, but they really look at it as basically impractical or irrelevant to their life. They read about things like turning the other cheek, and they kind of reason to themselves that that isn't really practical. I mean, it would be a Horrible thing if we just all sort of ignored violent people like that, and we just let them sort of have their way. What a war, what a horrible place we'd be living in if this is the way that we let people get away with this stuff. So so yeah, that sounds great, but it just doesn't work in real life. Or or what is this whole thing about being angry? I mean, you can't really equate anger with murder. I mean, doesn't that minimize the real realities of those who really do lose someone to a violent act? Are we trying to elevate our particular offenses to theirs? I mean, is that, is that really any sort of relevant thing for this world? Or is it really that wrong to lust after someone in your heart? I mean, isn't that natural? Isn't that what sort of drives us together as, as people that love one another? And what about people that, that want to be looked at that way? They kind of promote themselves. I mean, is it really that wrong if they're putting themselves out there in order to be an object of your lust? I mean, is there, is there anything really wrong with that? Or how can you take no thought for tomorrow? I mean, are you supposed to not make any plans? Is it wrong to have a bank account, a savings account? Are you not supposed to really uh, sort of have any order or structure to your life? So they read the Bible, they read things like the Sermon on the Mount, and they say, yeah, that all sounds nice, but it's not practical. And it's not relevant to my life. That's the mindset of a superficial believer. In many cases, they know that they're different from the other people in the church, they know that they're different from Christians, but they assume that the differences are just natural tendencies. Yeah, I just wasn't born that way. I, I see people, I see people who are really interested in the Bible. I see them hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but I just wasn't made that way. I mean, I see people who are peaceable, but that's just not me. People who are meek or even mourning, but that's just not me. I'm just all about. You know, just enjoying life. But the things Jesus talks about in the sermon, they're not natural to anybody. These aren't natural tendencies for anyone. People are not born like this. No one's born like this. These are qualities that someone receives from God when He transfers them from the kingdom of this world and the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. These are the qualities of someone who has become a citizen of a different world. These are the characteristics of someone whose character and soul has been touched by God. You may not understand that. You might be someone and you hear all this stuff and you want the things that Jesus is talking about. You want to go to heaven, you want to you want to be uh someone who receives the the kingdom of God. You want to be called a child of God, you want to be comforted, you want to receive mercy. You want to inherit the earth maybe. Or the things of the earth. You want to be satisfied. You want everything that Jesus is talking about here. In other words, you want to be blessed. You want all of this stuff. But what the superficial believer doesn't understand is that that they are seeking these things in in the very ways that prevent them from ever receiving these things. Jesus is going to tell you where to find these blessings. And it's not in following your own impulses. It's not in following your own crowd. It's not by being a part of this world. If you're a superficial believer, you're in the world and you're of the world. You love its ways. You mimic what you see on its channels and its videos. You sing its songs. You mirror its dress. You embrace its attitudes, its perspectives. You're looking for blessing. You're looking for happiness, but you're looking for it in ways that are bound to lead you to misery. And it's like you're lured out onto a trap door with some you know, shiny little thing that you've been cherishing or desiring in your heart and you see it there and you go for it until the drawer or the door drops from underneath you and you go falling out of control into a gulf of despair. This is what Jesus knows. That's why the second part of the sermon is as important as the first or the second part of the purpose I should say. Is as important as the first because Jesus is not only trying to expose superficial believers that might be in the crowd, but he also wants to explain where genuine blessedness comes from. He wants to help you understand where genuine blessedness comes from. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're blessed because at the end of the day, they have what everyone else is seeking. They have what everyone else wants. They have salvation. They have the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says they have comfort. They have satisfaction. They have what everyone else says that they want. This is really the, the basic idea behind Blessed, the word makarios is used not just in Scripture but outside of Scripture to speak about people who are in fortunate or privileged positions. It would be used to speak to someone who's to be congratulated for something. Congratulations to them. Blessed are they. They're people who in many ways are to be envied. They're in a great situation, we might say. They they have what everyone else is seeking. This is the meaning behind blessed. Or another way to say that is these are the people who are experiencing life the way it is meant to be experienced. These are people who are experiencing life the way it was meant to be experienced. They're getting out of life what you're supposed to get out of it. And Jesus is giving this sermon or these messages or whatever it might be in order to explain to his disciples where this genuine blessedness comes from. It's not from the source that most people think. People wouldn't think of a poverty of spirit or a mourning to be a privileged position they wouldn't think of, uh, uh, of a role or a position of meekness to be privileged. But Jesus says this is the source of genuine blessedness. Now, this isn't necessarily new in many ways. This corresponds to what you read in other places of Scripture, even out of the Old Testament. It corresponds, for example, to the person that Solomon describes in Proverbs 3, when he's talking to his son. And he says to him in Proverbs three thirteen, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her and those who hold fast to her are called blessed. He's describing the source of true blessedness. He says it in verse 13, and he says it again at the end of verse 18. He sort of brackets this whole thing. He wants his son to understand these are the people who are blessed. This is where a true state of blessedness comes from. It's the person, he says, who finds wisdom and then lays hold of wisdom, all that sort of language describing a, uh, what you might call an aggressive not someone who just sort of stumbles on or stumbles through life on from one idea to the next but this is a person who makes the pursuit of wisdom their life's goal they want to find it and when they find it they cling to it hard this is the wisdom that Solomon wants his son to seek he's already warned him in the first two chapters of Proverbs about seeking this from the mouth of the simple or the naive, or we might say the superficial. Those people who have little attention or interest in the wisdom of God, they're driven, as Solomon has explained, by their own passions and pleasures. And Solomon has already warned his son about seeking wisdom from these kinds of people, people who are not themselves Um, those who've practiced wisdom, they are fools. Solomon wants his son to seek wisdom not from the advice and guidance of the naive people who surround him day after day, but to seek the rare wisdom that comes from God. Because he knows that this is the wisdom that leads to true blessedness. This is where true blessedness comes from. And so he wants him to To experience this. He wants to help him to understand the benefits of this. This blessedness you receive which is better than silver. It's better than gold. It's more blessing that you would ever get from jewels. In fact, he says, nothing you desire can compare with the blessedness that this wisdom is going to bring you. Because as he says here, the ways of wisdom are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are peace. It's going to transform your life into something pleasant. It's going to transform your home into a place of pleasantness and peace. It's going to transform your workplace into a place of pleasantness and peace. It's going to transform your relationships social relationships, your school relationships. It's going to transform all of that because all the ways of this wisdom are pleasantness and peace. And ultimately, Solomon says that this wisdom is a tree of life. It's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. You've heard of the tree of life, haven't you? You read about it in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2, verse 9, it says that when God planted the garden, right at the center of the garden, He planted the tree of life, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with all the other trees that He planted. And, of course, we know the story. Adam and Eve fell into temptation, into sin. And because of that sin, corruption... Disorder, chaos entered into the world. Adam and Eve themselves were corrupted. Their hearts and their minds were corrupted. And so in the next chapter, after all that's taken place, God, in verse 22 of Genesis 3, recognizes that Adam might, he says, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is the tree of life. It's the tree that gives you eternal life. And so God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden and destroys the tree. But Solomon references it and and he says here, in this wisdom is this ultimate blessing. It is the tree of life. It's the pathway to eternal life. So Solomon is urging his son to aggressively seek it because this is where the blessings are. It's the same blessedness that Jesus is explaining. It's the blessedness of those who are experiencing life the way it is supposed to be experienced. Like Job, in Job 28, verse 20, we could ask, from where then does this wisdom come? Where's the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of the living, he says in verse 21, and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. So you, so you could uh, soar to the heights of the birds and scan the entire earth. You're not going to find it. It's not going to be found with the living. You could you could plumb all of their ingenuity you could read all their books and watch all their videos and listen to all their counsel you're not going to find it you could even pass from the threshold of life into the threshold of death you could cross over to that side and guess what you're still not going to know it you're still not going to find it death says i've only heard a rumor of it i don't have it Job says in the next verse, God understands the way to it and He knows its place. God understands the way to true wisdom and true blessedness. He's the only one who knows it. And what Jesus wants to teach you from the Sermon on the Mount is this pathway. The pathway to genuine blessedness. It's not the pathway that's pursued by the world. It's a pathway that takes you through another world. Another realm. Another kingdom. Framed by different values. Different priorities. Different realities even. But it is the pathway to true blessedness. That's what's ahead of us. That's what's in store for us in the weeks and months to come. And I hope as we take our journey up the mountain to sit at Jesus' feet, that you're ready to ask yourself the question, what is a true disciple? And you're willing to, to lay aside all of your assumptions, all the things you thought you knew, and to hear from Christ Himself, what is a Christian? I want to know. I want to understand the pathway to genuine blessing. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're so grateful for this day, so thankful to be able to come back together as the body of Christ, as those who've come to worship You. But Lord, You need to expose us. If we're superficial and false disciples, You need to expose us. You need to teach us the pathway to true and genuine blessing. As you pulled your disciples aside to give them this very, very important message, Lord, we need to hear it. And so I pray that we would be aided by your Holy Spirit to lay aside all of our preconceived notions. To lay aside everything we have clung to that is in error, driven, by the priorities of this world and that we would find the true meaning that we would discern what a true disciple is. Lord, would you do that for us? Would you teach us as you taught your early disciples? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.